This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello and welcome to Conversations with the Voice of Reason. I am your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's conversant is J.G. Fox, who is an artist in London and is connected, if not a contributor to unheard which is not only a web publication but apparently an in-person salon in the beating heart of london in this conversation jay and i talk about the political landscape and the artistic landscape and where those two intersect i find him to be a deep thinker as well as a exceptional artist and if you have a chance definitely find the largest computer screen that you can and click the link to his work which is down there in the description the rest is for you to listen to and not for me to explain so without further ado here is jg fox okay cool how are you doing yeah very good how are you i'm pretty good pretty can you good. hear me all right is everything okay yeah i hear you great um you're ensconced by some nudists. That's right. Yeah, it's Adam and Eve. Yeah. Poor folk. <laughs> yeah. Do you have any relation to them? Uh, yeah, I think they're a distant ancestor. <laughs> I made I made this out of um, plasticine. You, you know, I think you have a different word for it in the US. Like uh, it's like a children's modeling clay, like bright colored, like Wallace and Gromit. Oh, really? Like what a do you clay call that almost? Stuff? Then yeah. Yeah. Female, maybe? I don't know. Plasticine? I don't know. So yeah, you did but it all over like here. Mushing with your hands or like with a. Yeah, you just. Uh, yeah, and mixing the colors like that, you know, like just red and yellow and blue. It's oh, wow. a page oh. I did through lockdown. Oh, and so the there's only three. Color. There's only three colors. Or... I think I had you know, six or something like that. Oh, wow. Wow. But the mixing took so long. You can see it on my website properly. Yeah. Yeah, I like it. In, uh, well, I guess I'm not in person right now, but I like. The, yeah, the yeah, it looks really nice in person. Yeah, yeah, you can get the light shining off it. What, how big is it? I don't know really. That's that's the sides of it. That that's they're the edges. So, right. yeah, human scale. That's big. You, you just got back from uh, Genspect. Yeah, is that right. I got back from a lot of different things. That's why my camera's all not set up. All right. I'm still kind of like, um, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know where I am right now. I've been traveling so much in the last couple are months. Are you home now or are you still traveling? I think this is home. This I, I'm going to call it home, but it doesn't feel like home now. You know how it is. Yeah. <laughs> how long were you on the road? Uh, well, I've been, I mean, I just, the last four months, I've been just traveling, you know, California, New York, wow. DC, Hawaii, Denver. I think I'm missing one other place that I went. 
Um, that is a long yeah. time. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. What 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 brought that on? Well, there's a lot of different uh, activities going on. Uh, some of it has to do with the um, gender issue. Yeah. I, uh, you know, the one one event that um, my wife uh, was working with is SAGM, which is Society for Evidence-Based Gender Medicine, which is a right. conference with medical professionals uh, talking about the evidence around specifically about uh, childhood um, body modification for the sake yeah, of yeah. gender I- identity or ideology. Take your pick. Right. And then there's GenSpect, which is kind of the same thing, but different because GenSpect has a, a broader umbrella that they yeah. are they're more inclusive of, uh, you know, People who are not just professionals, but mothers, uh, detransitioners, yeah, yeah. trans widows, evolutionary biologists, um, yeah, you know, cultural critics. I know a little and, about Genspec because I watch Stella's podcast sometimes. She seems yeah. great. Yeah, With, yeah. Uh, Sasha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Every once great. in a while, I catch it. Yeah. yeah, she seems like a really nice lady. They're doing wonderful work. Stella's great. Stella's wonderful. Um, yeah. So, yeah. why do you think you got interested in that topic specifically? I was thinking about it earlier because people were asking me who you were, and I was saying, "Well, like, what what kind of podcast do you have?" And I was saying, "Well, it covers a load of things like cultural wars and stuff, and then there's a lot of uh, gender things as well." And yeah. I was thinking, why those things end up getting linked? What do you think? What do you tell people? Well, uh, I have to. Are you so? How did you get into art? Uh, <laughs> I'll answer your question. <laughs> um, I don't know. I don't know where to start. Yeah. I, maybe I should hit it back like a tennis ball. Um, <laughs> uh, well, there's no, an like artistic I, temperament, right? Yeah, sure. Okay. I've always been and, doing art, really. Yeah, and it's hard to know where to start. The, like, there's a there's a there's a reason why you do, it, or like there's a, there's a temperament, right? Or would you agree with yeah. that? There's a kind of an artistic temperament. Yeah. And for me, one of the aspects of that is the, is a compulsion to create, like like a compulsion to produce, like a compulsion. I have to create something. I have to create something. Sure, yeah. yeah. Uh, and then there's also a compulsion to be unique, or um, unique's not quite the word, but not just to produce, but to produce something new, or to produce a variation on something, or to engage yeah, yeah. creatively um, yeah. with the material, uh, so that. And over the course of my life, that that takes on different um, kind of like either more egocentric or what's the opposite of egocentric, egotistonic or something like that. Right. I don't know. Um, I'll take your word for it. Kind of, you know, is it is it about me or is it about something else? Anyway, right. so with regard to creating something such as content, which is mm-hmm. what we call what we're creating right now, we're creating content. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, there's the, there's a need to constantly produce content, ABC, mm-hmm. always be contenting, yeah. right. but then you also want content that's interesting content. That's this valuable. So content basically mm-hmm. that, that grabs attention, that keeps attention. And then once the audience engages their attention with it, because it's interesting, they invest their interest into it. Then they get a return yeah. on their interest. They get a return on mm-hmm. their investment. So some somehow yeah. valuable. Uh, and so when I was in the so-called uh, anti-woke movement or the anti-SJW movement or the 
I don't know, a cultural, a critical of social justice movement, which is where I mm. began with regard to trying to understand what happened at the Evergreen State College and then trying to understand what's happening in our culture with, uh, you know, with our media and all this kind of really weird yeah, uh, yeah. agitation for revolution stuff that was going on and still mm -hmm. is going on. Um, if you can believe it, they haven't run out of revolution because the revolution <laughs> never, never runs out. Um, yeah. There, there's different topics that you one can get invested in and race as a topic it has a very short shelf life for me one because it just doesn't matter to me that much like yeah. race just isn't i mean i know it you know racism and race has an effect or has a salience culturally mm -hmm. but the culture war around it it doesn't seem like it's ever going to end because it's a perpetual uh it's a perpetual tribal uh, signifier, and there's a lot of vested interest into keeping racism going on. Right. Like the people who the the most racist people right now want to preserve racism in the name of ending racism. Uh, yeah, right. And it's just it's just so like there's no real meaning to that. Right next door to that, or you know, adjacent to that, if you go and you see this social justice stuff is trying to advance the revolution on all these different fronts. One being race, race. It used to be class, but class isn't so salient anymore. It's more about race. And yeah, uh, really then there's this other stuff kind uh, called uh, gender mm -hmm. and gender has to do with men and women mm -hmm. and the categories that they inhabit culturally. And there is a whole lot of salience there for me because men and women, just like the picture behind you, they come together and they create this thing called humanity and they create this thing called culture and they create this thing called families and they create these things called babies and they create these things called um, relationships. And, mm -hmm. uh, and then men get together and they create this thing called patriarchy, which is awesome. And women get together and they create this thing called matriarchy, which is also awesome. And mm -hmm. they, there's all this tension and the tension is always dynamic. And it's very personal to me because mm -hmm. it's personal to everybody. Everybody has a very deep relationship with their own sex and mm -hmm. with their gender, which it would be their way of interacting with the culture as a sexed individual, yeah. as a man or as a woman. So that's the short answer. Wouldn't you say that you're more, because if it was just that, wouldn't you be interested in just feminism and power plays between men and women? But you're interested in specifically transgenderism, which is, uh, hmm. a I, I, isn't it more to do with, it's a very specific claim to say you're in the wrong body. And it, you seem to be more interested in in that specifically than the idea of uh, the the dynamic between men and women as groups, because there's that, that's hmm. I'm not sure how that fits in with. It's definitely linked to the culture war, and what yeah. happened to Evergreen in a wider uh, picture. Yeah, but I just wonder what how you would say it fit in. Well, like. like I don't know. Firstly, would you agree with that, that that's more specifically what you're interested in? In transgenderism? Yeah, in, in the claim that you can uh, be in the wrong body. Well, I mean, if you look at my series on sex, gender, and transition, very little of it is about actually transition. It's more about what this topic is bringing out in other people and what this topic is uh, causing other people to state claims in. There's so mm. much more. The claim that you can be born in the wrong body is just one specific 
vector of opening up the question, what is it to be in a body? What is it to be a man? What is it to be a yeah. woman? So it's a pretext. And I've done, I, I have a playlist called women right? and it's just 240 or so hours of right. me just listening to women. What do, what do you think about this? What do you right, think about right, that? Right. Yeah, you know? yeah. And so, uh, yeah. so the transgenderism thing is just, I guess, one way in which the algorithm makes my content um, available yeah. to people, but it's really not. That's probably right. Yeah. Not terribly important to me because it's not, it's not true. <laughs> There's yeah. nothing true there. I mean, there is truth in, um, I guess some would say being highly gender dysphoric, um, there's people, there's personal truth there. There's truth in mm. the, uh, ability for science and technology to modify human beings to, um, to appear in certain ways. So the, the, yeah. there's factual truth there, but there's no truth in, in being yeah. born in the wrong body. Yeah. Have you been, re have you read, uh, Mary Harrington's new book? Um, feminism against progress. That's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. She's great. Do you know her? Do you get to hang out? I haven't met gets... her yet. But, oh, really? uh, no. Yeah, I know. Oh. I I, I want to see her around. I I think she's great. I think she's the best writer at Unheard. But uh, yeah, because that she puts forward a case of. See, that's more what I was getting. I thought you you would be more interested. I I I didn't know that you were more specifically interested in sex. I thought it was that sort of uh, what did you call it, the cyborg side of thing uh well, you know, I mean, the cyborg is modification on the base human being so i'm interested in the base yeah. human being right 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 yeah i i have a different i have a yeah over the i've been doing that topic for five years and there's still mm. more to think about and to discuss yeah and it's not just the trans stuff is just one that's what calls attention to this deeper cultural issue. What is a man? What is a woman? Why, why are human beings split into man and woman? Why do men and women tend to be different? And how can we modify society intentionally, or can we modify society intentionally to help harmonize the sexes more? Um, mm. And what is this war? What is this battle of the sexes? And how did it result in this battle over gender? Yeah. And what's a woman? Yeah. And and what what am I supposed to do with being a man? Do you think about that? Yeah. I mean th it's literally right behind you. Like there's this very yeah. powerful symbolic <laughs> relationship that that's thousands of years old and that and specifically as an art form is foundational to western art. It's like this mm. relationship between male and female and there's something tricky right between them. There's this fruit mm. that has something to do with life. There's this fruit that has something to do with good and bad. And then there's this really snaky little devil that's intertwining and, and screwing with us constantly yeah. right between us. Mm. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's, it is a fascinating subject. Yeah. What do you think about it? About what men, men and women? About gender, about uh, about the entire subset of culture that's based around male and female. Whether it's rights or expression, I think, or power. I, I'm I'm really I'm really convinced by the first part of Mary Harrington's argument that feminism especially over the 20th, 20th century, was a result of uh, 
you know, advances in technology. And then... This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Technology and also the enlightenment. Um, this this idea of the individual being the um, basic building block of humanity and how women specifically interact with the idea of the individual rational agent. Yeah. Yeah, but then it doesn't she argue that it's that it's technology that allowed uh women to be freer agents and therefore sort of fill that uh that role? I think didn't technology uh, enable all of us. It, it enabled all of us. So Mary Harrington's uh, a great deal of Mary Harrington's uh, not her ideas or her argument, but the basis mm -hmm. of how she's crafting it is based on Erica Bacciochi's, um I don't think I have it here. History of uh, fem the feminist movement, and yeah. So there's there's an ideological aspect to this, but there, well, there's there's a technological and an ideological aspect of this, and they're intertwined. The Enlightenment. Um, was a certain relationship to the world that enabled technology um, to rapidly increase its efficacy and, and, and yeah. its intrusion into what it means to be man. So the the family unit had been based in a very local kind of life, right? So the man right, right, wasn't right. that far from home. The man was working in the field, the woman was working in the field, and then there was gendered, mm -hmm. there was this kind of gendered split in... Yeah and the activities and then children were also working too. Mm -hmm. But once the man gets shipped off to, you know, uh, this company over here, right. And he leaves yeah. the home, the woman's left with the home and it's no longer mm -hmm. in, as integrated, but then the woman in the home starts to have the washing machine starts to have like the vacuum, right. And starts to yeah. get, so which, which frees her time up from these really arduous, kind of activities, right? And so where, where does that time go? And the man is also uh, broken from the family too. And then there's this mm -hmm. whole, I can't really get into, I can't really remember it all, but there's this whole idea of property and, yeah. and how we, how law or how society delegated property between man and woman and woman was kind of the property of the man. And in mm -hmm. our point of view, that seems like he owns her, but it was just yeah. the way that the state conceived of this primary unit yeah, which yeah, was yeah. one whole. A man and a yeah. woman came together and were one thing. It was the family, and mm -hmm. so the man was the agent that you know uh, was responsible for that family, and the woman was a part of that family. Yeah, and yeah. Then what, however, they delegated their ownership within the family is one thing, but 
however the state interacted with it was through another thing. And then you Mm -hmm. have the evolution of property rights being granted to women, the suffrage being granted not only to women, but to to non-landed men, right? So you have like this, feminism is one aspect of this whole kind of societal development that that's in yeah. the shadow of of the Enlightenment, or or yeah. sparked from the, these ideas that are nested in the Enlightenment. I like I like the idea that, um, like as you explained there, it, when it was more just these family units of cottages with little cottage industries, yeah. you know, in a sort of pre uh, modern era, that there was there was something like I don't know if you call it like equality, but it was it. There was well, more equality. Tighter the integration. Because... There was tighter integration. Yeah. So yeah. the balance of it was, I'm sure like the balance shook out. And if you listen to a lot of specifically UK radical feminists, they really yeah. concentrate heavily on women's rights. And so they're really concentrating on how women were abused or more, much more easily abused. Right. Yeah. And they bring up really good instances. I think in Dublin, there were actually signs telling you not to beat your wife, kind of like in New yeah. Orleans, there's signs telling you not to murder other people, you know? Sure, so there's yeah, yeah. like, there's certain aspects of it where women did get the shorter end of the stick. It's not yeah. the full picture though. But it was more like, uh, like both had horrible lives, you know? It was, uh, you know, compared to what? The, compared to us? Co- yeah, compared to modern day, like uh, you know, but, but uh, like so, us the, who the men popping like SSRIs and, and yeah. uh, feeling completely <laughs> alienated from the world. But I mean, in terms of in terms of what you'd think of in as oppression, like uh, like the men would mm-hmm. be going out and working really difficult jobs, you know, in coal mines, and then the women would be uh, at home doing you know very difficult things as well. And there was. I don't know, because like looking at it like that, it makes it harder to go with that sort of that radical feminist Marxist type conflict theory view that the whole of the whole of history is just men sort of oppressing women uh, as a class. But, you know, it it can't have been like that primarily because it like it, it must have been more like you know that you form a family unit and you have respect for each other and you try and get through things you can see that in in literature from you know medieval times and renaissance times there's there's it's not just an oppressive class you know oppressing another there's a, a balance there yeah yeah and i think harrington like argues that it, it that that balance got more out of whack as um industrialization happened and like you said the men go away from the home yeah. And it sort of makes things easier for men, but women who have to look after children uh, don't get those advancements until you know maybe a century later, yeah. and then start to catch up. But yeah, I mean, and that's assuming a lot of that's assuming that there's only one archetype of how those families uh, went through. Sure, life, yeah, yeah. You know, because I mean, there's plenty of people who, I mean, you look at you think of religious people and how they harmonize the duties between the man and the woman. And there's been, there's yeah. in America, and I'm sure in the Anglo and Europe fair country of <laughs> Avalon, um, that those, the, the conservative people like made it work, you know, and, and, you know, they, mm. they had like, faith, love, charity, you know, yeah, it got them through, but you know what, every culture is different. And I know like the sexism, uh, you know, exists, you know, uh, yeah. or has existed, but to what I degree just... is that the defining characteristic of society? 
And yeah, once we I, say I, that that is the defining characteristic of our society, ergo radical feminist critique of the patriarchy, how does that not mm-hmm. just lead to men emasculating themselves because man is evil turning into women and then women thinking man is good or man is the good or man is the standard of good and becoming more and more masculine. Yeah. It, yeah. it does get all out of whack. And that's how we get to not just transgenderism, but just gender bendery um, more, yeah. more broadly speaking. Yeah, I've seen that in... You know, that's how it is in art criticism. You have, uh, mm-hmm. you know, just ideas like the male gaze and things. Mm-hmm. The, the, everything's got to be seen as if, through that conflict theory lens, that everything is, uh, you know, one class oppressing another for history. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like you had, uh, you know, you know the book Ways of Seeing by John Berger? No. Sounds good. There was, uh, back in the... I think late 60s in the UK, um, you started to get color televisions, uh, more like, you know, readily available. And so yeah. like most houses have started to have a color TV. And yeah. the BBC started a, um, they wanted to fund a program that would look really good on color televisions. And so they commissioned this huge documentary series called Civilization by Kenneth Clark. I think it was a big hit over in America as well in the sort of 60s, 70s. And, uh, you know, and it was showing the the story of human civilization from, you know, I don't know, from like caveman times to today, yeah. and especially through art and, you know, artifacts and things. And it was a way of showing off color TV because you could show the paintings and, you know, the artifacts oh, yeah, and museums yeah. and things. Yeah. And so, and it was a really, really big success because they were pushing it so hard. It was this big flagship program. And, and it was, I think it's still regarded as really um, like pivotal documentary you know it like set the standard for how tv documentaries are made and things yeah. and so it was a really big deal but um because it was the late 60s in academia you had this postmodern movement and the postmodern sort of uh art professors uh uh they didn't like the program because it paints a grand narrative of human history you know and so then there was a response to that like a couple of years later, they commissioned another program by a man named John Berger, who was an art critic. And he gave a sort of counter to civilization. And it was called Ways of Seeing. And uh, he wrote a book from it. I think that is where the term, uh, the male gaze comes from, or at least hmm. the gaze. And then okay. it, it was adapted from that to the male yeah. gaze. But uh, it was a really, really influential show like Civilization. because, hmm. uh, And it's really good. Like I've seen it on YouTube. You can watch it, and uh, it's. Um, how do you say? In the book. How do you spell John's last name? Burgo or Burger? Burger. I think it's B E R G E R, but I'm not okay. sure. John Burger. 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 Okay. Okay. And uh, yeah, but he he put forward that sort of um, critical theory way of looking at art, and I think it was the first time that came out to a wide audience. You know, on on out of the universities and onto TV. And people found it really interesting. So he would look at pictures like, um, you know, the civilization, pro- sorry, the civilization program would just look at, they would take a painting and then it would, they would explain how this tells you about this time in human history, what people were doing, what people were thinking. And it's a progressive thing, you know, and then a century later, they advanced to this and this and this. And that's obviously not the critical theory way of seeing it. They don't like the idea of this uh, grand narrative, this one story that runs through human civilization. The 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 idea was um, hmm. the only narrative is just uh, 
is enforced by power. So it's whoever's in power, um, they can, uh, you know, yeah. Huh? That's yeah <laughs> yeah but so well he he would analyze paintings like it, it the, the show was just him standing in front of a sort of green screen and then uh, they would show pictures on the screen he would just talk to the camera and give mm. a sort of lecture but they're really engaging because they were new ideas you know mm. and so he would show something like uh, a picture of a nude and instead of uh and so the way you'd analyze it is uh what does this tell you about the time it was painted? How were women treated? What was the person, you know, the, the painter? What's it tell you about them? What's it tell you about the society and the culture around the painting? Or a better so example he, would be, he, he looks at, um, yeah. I remember one specifically where there's a, there's a pastoral scene with two, um, you know, rich Dutch landowners, I think, dressed up in their Sunday best, like a, a dual portrait. And in the background, you've got their estate and the house and things, you know, that like uh, from maybe the 1700s, someone's commissioned this, this couple. And he's looking at that. And then you investigate, what does this tell you about um, money? What does it tell you about, you know, the the way that, that society was structured, how capitalist it is? Uh, what about the people who aren't in the painting? What about the, you know, the people that worked on the plantations that these people must have owned the, and the land? And it's a way of... Uh, you know, criticizing the culture through the artwork. Yeah. And it was very, it was very influential. And I think uh, that's still, that's still the dominant way to look at paintings in, uh, you know, if you go to museums no, and things. That's yeah. not looking at paintings. Though. No. That's thinking. No. That's thinking about paintings. Yeah. But even then, if you go around, I would say if you go around the big museums in London, that's how most of the critique will come across still. It will be used as the paintings are a way to understand the power structures that were at play at the time the artwork was was made. Yeah. And you look at what isn't be isn't there and what uh who's excluded and how, as uh, an artist, how do how does that mindset influence you when you're creating something to be looked at? I just well, it's it's totally wrong, I think. I think that it's it's complicated because it relies on a postmodern philosophy that says that we can't have any shared um language that because the alternative to that is that, when you look at the picture of the Madonna and Christ, that's a shared cultural image that has some resonance in me the same way it has some resonance in you, despite the fact we don't know each other and we're from uh, different places. And see, the postmodern, uh, the postmodern interpretation would be that the only reason I might find that picture beautiful is because of the culture that I've been brought up in and uh, you know what's been enforced upon me. There's nothing. There's nothing really in me which makes me find one thing more beautiful than another, apart from what's been conditioned into me by culture. But I, I really don't think that's right. And I think, I think that, I think something's happening now, philosophically, where, where, where proper counters are coming to that argument against that argument now, in the way of. Uh, 
I think Jordan Peterson's work. And also there's something funny. Um, I, I, I was going to talk to you and, you know, we were, we, we'd organized to talk to each other. And then I was, wait, uh, you said you were busy and you were traveling. And so then I was just waiting for you to email me back. And then I was watching another, uh, YouTube, uh, video of yours. You were talking to what are they called the good old boys. Hmm. And, and, uh, I'd never heard of those guys. It was a good, uh, interview. And then you started talking about, um, Curtis Yarvin in that interview and that you, you liked him and, uh, that you'd read, um, how Dawkins got pwned and that it was a really great way to understand the current moment. It was a really like pivotal essay. And I was listening to that on last Thursday and, and, you know, obviously I was, I was waiting to get a reply back from you from an email, but it was weird because the day before I'd met Curtis Yarvin just randomly, I just bumped into him at a party and I was talking to him. And that's when I thought I'd email you again. I sent you that video and things. And I said, uh, you know, uh, I, I just thought I'd mention it because it was a weird synchronicity. I think that, that essay, um, you know, how Dawkins got pwned that that's, I think that was at the start of a, a new way of looking at things as well in that, how he explains, uh, when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. that the secularism that Dawkins expresses is a bona fide religious framework, but it's just one without a God. And I know, I know lots of people have made that, um, that sort of observation that, you know, he's still working within a sort of religious framework, but Yavin really nails it down. He really does a good job of it. Like, um, spelling out how there's a specific type of, um, memeplex that is analogous to Christianity and that you can get rid of God from it. And then it has some aspects which help it um, transmit uh, better, like how it's uh, it's cool, you know, being a Christian isn't cool, but being that sort of atheist and things. But then it smuggles in these ideas of um, you know, fraternity and that people are, should be treated equal and that you, you know, should we be know that they are, nice that we are all equal. We all have this universal yeah. human yeah. essence to us. Yeah. And then Yavin points out that those, those are not rational claims that they're not, you, you have to back those up. Uh, you know, those are the faith-based claims unless you can justify them from something else. But uh, I, it was, it, it's a good why is it important? Because it really, it really clearly pointed out that there's no getting away from that sort of religious uh, framework. I think you're sort of built for it, and you have you have to have a sort of theology. And even if it becomes, even if you get rid of God, you have something like. Uh, I think theology is the right word. 
That's what you, you uh, have moral leverage. What do you mean by that? Why do you use those words? So I interviewed a woman uh, earlier this year, and I just published the interview mm -hmm. uh, today and yesterday. And she was working with this young girl who uh, was adopted by her grandparents. I don't know. I can't remember what happened to her parents, but was adopted to, by her grandparents, had some issues, uh, decided to change genders, or the, the counselors talked her into changing genders. And then she gets, because she's getting bullied for being a girl, she turns into a boy and still is bullied for being a girl. Um, even mm -hmm. though, you know, even though she's using the boys bathroom, the boys are like now have better access to bully her. The girl runs away, um, gets, uh, hooks up online with somebody who, uh, sex traffics her. And then she, she gets discovered in another state. The state wants to protect her gender identity. And so doesn't let her grandparents, um, you know, interfere because they don't accept this gender identity that this girl has. This girl's yeah. like 14. 13, 14. Jesus Christ. Put her into a boy's uh, home. She gets bullied, sexually harassed, yeah. runs away again, gets sex trafficked again, ends up in Texas. Texas then gives the girl back to her grandparents, her guardians. Jesus Christ. Um, and very important, powerful story about that, you know, just detailing the current state of law, power, um, and uh, this whole gender thing. But yeah. after that conversation, so that conversation, we we, we talk about that story for a couple hours. And then it turns out the woman that I'm speaking to worked for the State Department for several decades. And what she do right. with the State Department is go to these other countries and say, if you want American money, you need to have American values. And these values were human rights. And so yeah. they would use the moral leverage of human rights to affect certain behaviors that probably also have economic, um, but as well as moral justifications. And then they give yeah. these other countries money, funding. Mm. And it was just really interesting because now the global American empire or whatever you want to call it, um, yeah. is still doing that with this pride flag, right? So it wants yeah. to, you know, I, I was just talking with somebody about the Ukraine, uh, it's a Russian about the, the Ukraine. So America gave is giving Ukraine all this money to fight this war with Russia basically mm -hmm. to decimate its youthful population for some reason. Anyways, there's all this stuff going on with, with Ukraine and Russia, but okay. America is supporting Ukraine. Ukraine is a very conservative country, but Zelensky, this actor slash president who was mm -hmm. playing an actor slash president before he became an actor slash president. So there's yeah. a lot of meta going on in there. He <laughs> just rams through gay marriage. This country has, doesn't want anything to do with gay marriage, but America wants it to have gay marriage right. affected in it. So was this, this recently, yeah, it was just, uh, yeah. Within, yeah. Within the last, yeah. Several months, at least that's right, the, okay. what was related to me, but right. So the America has a moral mission in the world. It used to be, we're going to give them democracy, but now we're going to mm -hmm. give them progressivism, uh, in, yeah. in, in the form of this thing called human rights, which has to do with, mm -hmm. you know, various different aspects of what it is to be human. And, 
and the cool thing about that Yarvin essay is that, well, what is a human? And he really goes through Yarvin and, and how Dawkins got pwned really intentionally says, we're not going to use the word human because human mm-hmm. already, we already have an idea of what a human is. And it's not a real term. It's like, it's a, it's a religious term. So we're going to call them like bipedal hominids or something like yeah, that. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and we're just going to talk yeah. about them as though we're talking about a strange entity. Mm-hmm. And, um, I'm kind of losing my mind. He does. He does the same thing with the with the state as well. He talks. He, he won't call it the state. But he'll, he'll talk about it as a a corporation, a sovereign corporation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah and yeah, I found yeah. that really interesting because he was saying that uh, that's another value that gets smuggled in with that. Yeah. Um, what's he called? Universalism. He calls it yeah. the, this. The, the, what Dawkins is religion. What you and, were saying uh, about new ways of seeing. Yeah, ways um, of seeing. Yeah, and ways of seeing. Well, you you were talking about the how the critical lens um, got superimposed over our looking or our relationship with art, and mm-hmm. before that, you you kind of touched upon there was a religious way of looking at art or or a pre-critical way of looking at art. Yeah, that was a shared value, and then you brought in Yarvin as this reemergence. You brought in. Peterson and Yarvin about a reemergence of looking at things in a different way. And with Peterson, I see him resurrecting the union lens of archetypes and archetypes Mm -hmm. are transcendent values. And you can make kind of scientific claims about them as kind of like somehow burnt into our brains. They're just like, they're Mm -hmm. they're, They have a biological basis. I think you can go that route because they keep on popping up in, in cultures over and over and over again. And they, that, and that kind of paves the way to this transcendent access to meaning that transcends this one critical lens that is destructive of every narrative that doesn't resolve into the exertion of meaning over somebody else or the exertion mm-hmm. of meaning onto a projection of meaning onto someone else. Yeah. Whereas archetypes are the, uh, are a projection of meaning, but also like an, a, a releasing of meaning that's already there because our, our brains are set up to make meaning. I'm wondering how Yarvin or his, his deconstructive way mm-hmm. of, I guess, I guess Yarvin's a part of deconstructing the universalism of critical theory, the universalism of pro- progressivism and saying, this is just another, this is just another mm-hmm. value set. And there are other value sets, but I don't really see Yarvin. I, I have to make this statement really carefully because I think it's wrong already. I don't see him necessarily advancing a positive vision of the world. I see him critiquing a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I, that's right. The, I think the, the critique is, is useful because he, he, like I said, he really drove a nail through the fact that, um, Dawkins really wasn't as atheistic as he thought he was. And he wasn't able to get away from certain, you, you can't develop a software that, can get rid of the hardware limitations of being a person. Hmm. There's things that are built into you. And, and then I think when you add that with, um, maps of meaning by Peterson, you get the idea that I think Peterson does a really good job of, of, of drawing a line from, from the memes of Dawkins from, uh, uh, what's this book called? The, Oh, the selfish gene. gene. Yeah. Selfish gene. Yeah. From the selfish gene, which is a really solid 
you know, scientific work, and then drawing a line from that all the way to Jungian archetypes, which are, we you know, have always been considered a sort of woo and and, and a bit strange. Yeah. But I think the idea, like, of um, that that you can get something that's genetic and mimetic co-evolution, mm. that the stories can get better and that you respond to the stories and your life is made better by the story and your chance of survival is made better by the story. Oh. Cool. Like, um, so like, like, it, it, I, I talked about this before with someone. Imagine if you had uh, different tribes and they like to sit around a campfire and tell a story at night and then tribe one just like to sit around and they, they didn't like to tell stories. They just like to sit around and, and be silent. And that gave them a, a release of dopamine in their head. They really liked sitting around in silence. And so there's a physical thing in their brain, which releases the chemical and makes them feel good in silence. And then you have another tribe who it, it, the chemical releases because they like to, the, when they tell a story, but the story is just, you know, I, I walked around today and it's just about what they saw. Today I walked around, I saw a tree and it was green. And they love that kind of story. There's a, there's a little thing in their brain which goes off like that. And then you have a, a third tribe and they have this physical adaptation perhaps in their brain where the dopamine is released when they hear a story that's, um, you know, I went out today and a, a pig jumped out at me and it had big tusks and it was scary and then I didn't know what to do and I picked up a rock and I threw it at the pig and it ran away. And they love a story like that. The third tribe has a massive genetic advantage if they love that story, because they're learning how to deal with this difficult situation, which could save their life without expending any calories. And, uh, you know, that, that could literally help their genes survive. And then because they've got this, you know, this release in their head when they hear a story like that, they want to hear more stories like that. They get good at telling stories like that. And then the, so the meme evolves as well to respond to that mechanism. And so the story gets more refined. And But then it, there'll also be something going back the other way where people who um, listen to that refined story have a better chance of passing on their genes, especially through sexual selection, which is what Peterson will point out. Like they'll become more attractive people. If that story gets refined down to... Um, you know, George and the dragon, this guy going out and, uh, you know, putting on armor and helmeting himself and slaying this dragon. People who really respond to that story uh, and uh, get obsessed with it and then try and live their lives like that, they might become better husbands, better fathers, better at building their house and, you know, they'll become more successful. And so then they have more children and that, and then their children are also similarly, you know, predisposed predisposed <laughs> what am i saying you know predisposed yeah. They, disposed yeah to that kind of story and so then you can see then you get a mimetic and genetic co-evolution and then i think that's right and i think that makes sense and i think those sort of those refined means will be something like the young ian archetypes where this they're i think quite literally built into you you know, you, you're, you are the ancestor of people who found some particular stories more interesting than others mm. over thousands and thousands of generations. Mm -hmm. And so if you take that as true, which I do, then postmodernism as an art critique, that sort of critical theory, it doesn't make any sense because it's based on the idea that there's nothing solid to start from. 
ironically, apart from power, which they somehow think they can smuggle in. Mm. But that there's no shared experience. We're all just, you know, bubbles in this sea of foam, and we can't mm. uh, really interact with each other. But mm. I, I should have like really, really built into me some response to the story of George and the Dragon as an animal that I won't have to some other story yeah. or, or just some nonsense story. And you should have the same thing. And so then that's, that's all you need. It, it, that's solid enough to start building on. And then you can build up a, uh, a whole, you know, a whole language of artistic play. And then the artist should be able to draw on that and draw on symbols like George and the Dragon and then play around with them. But it's, it's definitely solid because it's built into you as a person. And that's what I mean. I think that that's how I see it. And I think that argument makes sense. But that's that's a recent development. Like that it's it's come out of the last, you know, within my lifetime solidly, I think. I think before that, postmodernism really had a uh, really had a grip on on art criticism and, and the way we look at all culture. It really seemed convincing that there was no there was nowhere to get any a solid foothold to start from. Well, it's it, it, yeah. Well, postmodernism, um, just on a intellectual level, doesn't necessarily have to do with reducing things to powers. Just when you advance into the state where everything is relative to everything else, you end up. I guess it's the easiest thing to do is to resolve everything into power relationships because there's mm -hmm. still relationships, even though everything's disparate and disconnected and uh, relative there's still there's still connection there's still cohesion that's happening and so power i think is just like what eventually comes to dominate that way of seeing things and there's uh there could have been other ways to go with the postmodern step into away from grand narrative into mm. um the articulation of many narratives rather than the uh, rather than all these different narratives, all these different cultures being in a war and being resolved through some sort of conflict of exertion or power, you could have seen it as family relationships or as different, um, different, you know, species uh, that just kind of fill in different imaginal niches. Uh, and they're related to each other through an environment of, um, through through an environmental factor or through affection or through harmony, right? It, it, we could have, mm. you can use, so maybe I'm not using the word postmodern in the way that it has come to mean, especially in this discourse, but there is a way of stepping past the modern, which is to try to overstand the traditional cultures with a clean, clear, uh, globalist narrative that can somehow dominate all the other narratives, um, like, mm. like a supreme airport that connects all the different cultures together. Like, like this, this thread that runs through everything or this way of paving roads between all these different, um, smaller cultures, all these different kind of different expressions. When yeah. I embarked on a postmodern project in my twenties and finally resolved that project when I turned 40, it was to create a narrative that could unify all other narratives. Mm. 
uh, and not in a totalizing sense, but a narrative that can use other narratives or other forms, a, a, a structure that could encapsulate all the kind of forms of story. And how I ended up figuring out how to do that was to take a central character, well, to, to take a, a set of probably five or six characters and then have them expressed through all these different worlds, like through uh, right. allegory, through uh, science fiction, through fantasy, through modern life, through through horror, through, uh, through romance, um, through the epic form and, and through mm. the biblical forms, through mythology, and, and then trying to get all these characters to allow them to express themselves in these different ways you mm -hmm. i to to have like this emergent kind of archetypal little girl that just like has has a has an influence over every other world or or this this really ambitious man or this really beautiful woman um or 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 this jester kind of character and so to to get all these different forms to work together to work together rather than to dominate each other and they're all like mm -hmm. they're all processing their own narrative they're all processing their own arc and they don't necessarily have to bend the knee to any other arc mm. uh, it's it's a really it was a really ambitious project i don't know if it came together i don't know if if it's necessarily possible to do something like that but i know that mm that the thread that I used was not necessarily to dissolve everything into power. And that's what postmodernism did. And that's how it mm. became infected by the conflict theory. I think that Marxism or that conflict theory and postmodernism are two different things. Postmodernism is an aesthetic or a um, an attempt to look at things in relation to other things and to be kind of in between all these different narratives. And yeah. Uh, Marxism is is the the impulse to while you're in between succumbing to the alienation of being in between wanting to belong together and then saying well how do we belong together if we're all apart well power is ultimately the only way we can do that and one mm. final point if you look at the postmodern narrative the postmodern plus Marxist narrative and how it's played out over generations you see exactly how it affects people and how they behave are people mm -hmm. who believe in this happy are they productive are they at peace are they making peace or are they mm. disgruntled are they alienated are they degenerate and are they calling for uh let's just say uh certain forms of violence in order to yeah. create peace you know certain forms of racism mm. in order to create the end of racism certain sorts of sexism in order to end sexism um and then yeah. you'll see the modern college um mm. you know student body uh yeah, and and how they behave. I'm, I, I'm not sure that postmodernism does have a lot going for it, and it had a lot of real, real, true insights, and it produced a lot of good things. But I think it's just I'm trying to work out why postmodernism led to. It's uh, hard to be sincere. Yeah, but don't you think it, if like if you're breaking vision. everything down. If, if, like, uh, H Stephen Hicks describes postmodernism as like, uh, you know, when you're on a train in a station and then the other train starts moving and you can't tell if your train is moving or the other train. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's mm. hard to, it, when you've got no external frame of reference, you genuinely can't tell if you're the one that's moving or it's the world that's moving. Yeah. And the fundamental claim of postmodernism is that everything is in motion in regards to everything else. There's nothing fixed to start from. Mm -hmm. And I think as a philosophy, that's, that's an interesting way of looking at things. 
and it seems true and it's it really seemed true i think uh you know in the 20th century but uh then it sort of leaves it open at the end it goes well that's and that's it you know and i think maybe it's that openness which then it leaves a void and that void was filled by uh you know by that critical theory by that marxist theory by saying well at the end of the day it's going to be power that because you, the story you told, you said that you talked about this airport, this thing that connects all the other stories. But if you're being truly postmodern about it, you'd have to even that. You'd say, well, then why? Why Why connect the things? What, what's the purpose of that? You have to keep digging. And eventually you're always going to get to, well, uh, no, I don't know no reason. You know, it's it's arbitrary. Or and any then reason, I suppose, point, is my own projection and has to do yeah. with my advantage. But once you reach the end of that story, then some... Uh, professor can jump in and go, ah, well, I can actually answer why or another step. And it's because that's a power game. It's your, your ego, your, you know, it's, it's what you want to, uh, inflict on this situation. It's, it's mm. power. Mm -hmm. I mm. think it always leaves it open to that. And I think, so it, I think it is an inevitability of postmodernism that it leads to that, uh, to critical theory. There's, there's I, no... I don't think you can get another answer from it. Well, yeah, but I, I, I think that you can even accept that answer and then say, okay, and then, and so, uh, such as if we go back to art, yeah, to the painting behind you, which is a descendant from religious ways of knowing. Yes, yeah, so um, Rubens. And there were, you know, you have these cathedrals, these churches with just incredible works of art. And those incredible works of art tie together the highest people in society and the lowest people in society, right? So you have the right. aristocrats who are in, you know, they, they engage maybe with um, with it in a certain way. And then the plebs engage with it another way. And then the intellectual class engages in it also. They can see that the meaning, there's meaning here, you know, whereas their, yeah. their aristocracy and the plebeians maybe not are engaged with meaning, but they're engaged with, you know, maybe community or maybe social mm. ties, or maybe the, the pattern of life is just the pattern of life. And this is what we do because this is what we do. Um, yeah. which is just like, not even curious. It's just like, we do this because we do this and it, it's, it feels good to do this, you know, and we come together, we all sing the same song, we all hear the mm -hmm. same words, and then we all go out into our different classes of society. So you can go with the critical theory and say, okay, this is all power. And this, this person, there's this injustice and power. We need to flatten everything or whatever. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But, yeah. um, but in that, in that naive society that doesn't have that critical theory in there, it's just, it's just operating because it's operating. And then everybody gets mm -hmm. to go out and do the, the, uh, the, the king is the king, the prince is the prince, the baron's the baron, and they are the baron because they are the baron, you know, and the pleb mm -hmm. is the pleb because they're the pleb. And, you know, there's, there's a certain sort of stuckness to that. And, and yeah. so when we have like the merchant class come in and then capitalism come in and then technology come in and, and starts to, um, equalize people uh with regard to uh i don't know technology and uh, wealth doesn't mean as much and then class or status uh is there but it doesn't have the same kind of value to it mm. um and there's no grand narrative that ties everybody together is that we are a human race we are a people and we worship a god together um we are just what we are and we're you know a capitalist society i don't know 
so the church would just say uh, when I talked with Jason Bradley about um, population control, um, mm-hmm. you know, there are these big uh, organizations, the WF, the UN, they want to save humanity, you know, they want to save the world or they want to end humanity to save humanity or whatever they want to do. Yeah, they, sure. You know, they, they have this attitude. They'll go to Africa and they'll save Africans from mm. poverty. They're going to save people from poverty, but you, but they're replacing the Catholic church that went there and wasn't going to save anybody from poverty. They're going to save people, save people's souls. Poverty yeah. was just a state of existence that, that was just a part of the human condition. We're not going to try to solve the human condition by fixing the external things. We're going to give you food. We're going to clothe you and stuff. But the mm. most important thing is that we're going to save your soul. We're going to orient your values in a certain way. Um, mm. And I guess the WEF or what the UN, it, it, it wants to kind of do it secularly, but you see that it does have a value. It wants to, you know, educate women and have the women mm. have, have less, less babies and give them more. Um, I don't know what values they want to give, but they're doing the same thing that the church did, but they think that they can save the world or solve these world's problems. And every time they try to solve a problem, 10 more problems kind of catch up to them. Right. Whereas the Catholic church or like this other way of knowing just allows for these different classes uh, to exist and don't, you know, wealth in and of itself is, or poverty and wealth aren't the only vector of, or the primary vector of value. Is it genuinely, what do you think? I, I I don't know because I think I'm I'm pretty cynical. I think I must be misunderstanding why they want to do that. Like like, do you think it's genuinely a moral imperative? Like they really want. Like like you gave an example of of spreading, uh, you know, like like uh, homosexual equality to different countries and pride yeah. flags and things. Do you think that even if that's at a great cost to the organization? And it costs a lot of money and, you know, they really have to push it through and the people in the country don't want it. They push it through. Do you really think they're doing all that work because they really feel that there's just a moral imperative within them? Like, I, it's just hard for me to imagine that a, an organization that large would be trying to push morals like that, but it, it's not, there's not some cynical th- sort of uh, money or power reason behind it. I don't see how an organization that large can do anything without a moral a moral compass that ties together everybody's intentions towards mm. the, the same general direction. Like I don't see how human beings operate in concert without some sort of moral or maybe even just imaginative or ambitious kind of spark. Yeah. Yeah. I I I I'm I'm probably just as cynical but I think that it's not it, my cynicism breaks it down to uh, righteousness. The feeling of righteousness is more uh, uh, is more collectively motivating than just greed. Even though greed will align mm. with righteousness, righteousness will align greeds. Right? I don't yeah. think I think greed has less ability to align people than righteousness, and that's why mm. um, I think. Well, I think. I think I think and I think that there's a feedback loop. Corporations want to become moral because they know that people or the organization wants knows that people need morality. So they create some sort of moral or cultural competency uh, in mm-hmm. these different ways because they know that the people need that um, unified. So maybe maybe capital or or the purely greed aspect of the corporation sees that it's more efficient to have 
a you know righteous cause or some sort of morality, um, yeah. even just as a virtue signal, um, because that's how human beings are. And so mm. the greed enforces the fact that human beings are a certain way. And so it sets up, establish itself to, to mm. fulfill the needs of the humans because human beings operate more effectively um, when they are righteous. But I think that, I don't think you can take the righteousness out of human beings. What about the, that story you told me, the, that, that tragedy of the, the young girl who was moved around state to state? Uh, the transgender girl. There was, uh, you said there was institutions who were stopping us seeing our parents and and things like that. Yeah. Do you think they're acting in that same way? It, it, you think it's strictly a moral thing, or or do you think that the I I, I think a lot of people in those situations mm-hmm. are motivated by fear, like they're they're really worried about doing uh, which is being on the wrong side of history, right? Which is a form of negative righteousness. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. You you must talk to a lot of people too who are scared of getting cancelled and they won't speak out against things that they know are, are not right. Yeah, I think that's a that's a big uh, motivating force within these institutions. Uh, well, it, it, but it is responding to the righteousness or the claims of righteousness of a certain point of view, right? So, yeah. and this is this is the fascinating thing about this concept of the trans kid. Yeah. So there's this idea of the trans kid. Mm-hmm. It is a very infectious idea that separates people from asking certain questions. What mm-hmm. is the evidence of the trans kid? Even the people, the the so-called medical professionals, like WPATH, these, these organizations that lay out how to mm-hmm. trans a kid, when it comes down to how do you define a trans kid, it's all just like, because the kid says that they're trans. Yeah. And who told the kids that they're trans? Well, we told the kid that they're trans. So mm-hmm. who who so does the kid know that they're trans, uh, or are we telling them that they're trans? Uh, yeah. And then you also have the idea, even if you go into well, trans is uh, you can measure transness by you know if they have an insistent, consistent, and persistent desire to be the other sex, or mm-hmm. or consistent, insistent, and persistent dislike of their own sex. Yeah. And if you or or gender being how they uh, want to be perceived or how they are perceived and the difficult the, the, the difficulties they have with being seen as a woman or being seen as a man, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at the, the children who experience that form of distress, almost mm-hmm. all of them, puberty resolves most of that. And then the yeah, people yeah. who at puberty doesn't resolve for it, it takes a little bit longer, but they're usually gay or there's some other issue in play that is resolved by puberty. But if you have this idea that there's this trans kid and they have to be saved from puberty, mm-hmm. you can't start asking the questions. Well, it, it just leads you down this whole other moral framework. And it's really, really powerful because especially in my opinion, it's women who are really infected by this idea because it, it, it stirs up something in them to save a child or to, to protect this Mm. child, um, from what, from puberty. So they'll, they'll, uh, they'll rally around putting these kids on this thing called puberty blockers. And if you start to ask, well, what do these puberty blockers do? What is the Mm. evidence for them? You start to get into these really, 
uh, difficult um, situations where, well, we, one, we don't have a lot of evidence, and two, the evidence kind of leaves us to believe that this is not a good idea to stop somebody's puberty. Like, we don't have mm. the technology to restart it up. Um, the brain goes through certain developmental phases, and they're hard-coded mm. based on time, not based on this thing called gender or sexual development, but just human development. Anyway, so mm. the idea of the trans kid... Um, is so powerful that institutions adopt that or people who are involved in institutions adopt that and they adopt it with ferocity. And then Mm. they create the environment where you can't question a kid's identity. And then you get to a position where you have this girl who's obviously distraught, who's being trafficked around being treated by an institution as though she was a boy because the idea that she's a boy overrules the fact that she's a girl. And so it's mm-hmm. the proper thing to do. And there's probably ambition at play. Yeah, sure. There's ambition at play. There's probably fear at play in the in the people who are doing this, fear mm-hmm. and ambition, but also a sense of righteousness, a, a sense of righteous cause. This is the this is the outcome of like this is the next. Was it Obama or was it Biden that said that trans rights were were the the defining civil rights uh, battle of our of of this century? I think it was Biden, for right. whatever that's worth, right? But like mm-hmm. the global American empire has landed after they saw gay rights or gay marriage has landed on the trans kid now yeah as the, the as an entire institution who's motivated by this thing called civil rights or individual mm. rights or human rights which is all moral and it comes and, and mm. it dates back and it has had certain gains that are incontrovertible um and it also has had bad effects that are incontrovertible you know um mm. uh, with the communities that it's tried to help but we have rights we have equal rights under the law we we have a decrease in institutional racism certainly mm-hmm. um and institutional sexism you know certainly i i think that that those values must have risen out of um that, because before i before i got into thinking about this years ago I guess I would have thought that um, religious beliefs and doctrine over the years was came from the top down. You know, it was people writing, you know, a book of rules, and then it was integrated into the society. And you know, thou shalt not. But now I, I think it must be the other way around. The, the, these that, that's what that's what I was getting at with with Yavin and uh, Peterson. Mm-hmm. I think it must be that Peterson idea of mimetic and genetic coevolution sort of making some stories really connect with something inside of you in a very, uh, you know, in a reasonable way. It's that which causes the universalism, which uh, which uh, uh, Yavin is writing about. Like, because this is like the thing you just described with a trans kid, that's a new idea that, that that's not very old. That, 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 and that, that's where's that come from? It didn't. You didn't see it come down from top down. It sort of rose up in in the way that you described. You think it, it responds to something, especially in a woman. You said that, that that it's like trying to save someone. That's that's a sort of thing that you've got built inside of you, and this is a sort of meme that's parasitic on that, and probably other things, and that's why it's able to infect so many people, and uh, you know, as an idea. It's funny because the trans kid is also one of the ideas of the universalist progressive um, point of view that explicitly causes them to uh, to violate their uh, 
their other value of multiculturalism. Like every culture mm-hmm. has to now have trans people in it. Every yeah. culture needs to be uh, needs to be rescued from homophobia, or or mm-hmm. homophobia needs to be purged from every other culture. And so, mm-hmm. it turns every culture into like like it's it's a it's a again moral leverage for the modification of other cultures in the name of multi well, something that used to have multiculturalism is in it. It's it's universalizing. Mm-hmm total totalizing authoritarian movement that is nominally against authoritarianism is mm. is is for like all these rich diversity you know it says diversity is our strength and stuff but it, it erodes yeah, yeah, diversity yeah, yeah. while saying that well well it, well the the people who believe in it still believe in diversity too mm. right but but the trans kids like no every culture needs to be trans and every culture mm. needs to needs to celebrate homosexuality actually um yeah or you know queers for palestine kind of yeah kind of levels of yeah odyssey that that very um the very fact that it spreads like that and emerges like that is a sort of proof that there must be some shared um you know framework that people share that in order for the ideas to to spread like that you know what I mean? I think I, that's hmm. why I think it seems to be this. It seems that postmodernism is coming to an end of an idea because hmm. it's becoming clearer and clearer that there are there's shared hardware uh, that memes can spread across. Otherwise, it, 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 they wouldn't be able to spread like this. I think we're, you know it, it's been said many times that this sort of applied critical theory is like a religion, but it. It, it really is a religion, and we're watching now very fast a, a new a new religion uh, evolve and create and be created, yeah. and that's uh, it's really strange to see. And but this must ha- be how all sort of ideology is formed, like what what you're describing, mm. and you know how we've seen it evolve. I, I, I guess it, it was never this fast. But it's fast because of social media and the, you know, the extent to which we can communicate. Well, and what's the response to that then? Like, what what are these other ideas directing you to do? Positively. Well, to believe in positively, to to claim, to defend, to assert. Well, it means we don't need to look at art in the same way that John Berger did. And we don't look to need to look at culture like that. We can look at things. I'd like to see people getting more out of art and culture than they have been. Because everybody looks at a painting now of you know, like like a a knight rescuing a, a maiden, and they can see it in this terms of patriarchy and sexism and things. But that there used to be another way of looking at things before when we had this shared well of ideas to draw from. And that was something like, um, like all of those things can represent you. It could be, you know, you are the knight and you're also the maiden and you're also the dragon. They're all aspects of your psyche. It doesn't yeah. need to be about um, competing power claims. Yeah. And there's no barrier for you to understand anyone else. There's no... Um, you don't have to, you know, view this work as a woman or as a man or as a certain race. You know, like I, I can understand 
like a, a sculpture of the Pieta, like the, like the Madonna and, and Christ dying in her arms. That's a, a beautiful image. And on that really superficial postmodern level, you could say that perhaps I can't understand it because I'll never be a mother and I'll never know what it's like to lose a child. I'll never be like that. And so I can never really get it. But it represents that one thing, but it also represents all similar lower things. It represents every time you go out and you, you know, like if you start a business or something, you you create this little thing and it's like equivalent to a little baby. You work on it and you you want it to go well. And then you sort of release out into the world to get crucified and people, you know, criticize it and make fun of it. And you, you feel the pain of that. And then it fails. And then you are depressed and you're sad and you and you know that feeling it's not the same as losing a child obviously but it has uh it is it, in a similar sort of uh pattern it has a little echo of, of that archetype and so then you've never seen your son crucified but you can go to the vatican and see the pieta and if you've gone through something like that it can it can connect with you it's nothing to do with being a woman or being a mother or anything specific, anything based in identity. There are universal human truths. Hmm. And uh, as a human, nothing nothing else human is alien to you. I just want to expand on that. There are universal human truths, but they are also sexed truths. You, You look at Madonna, there's something inherently meaningful about her being a woman mm. yeah and, okay. and that relationship but, is take... feminine it's not just universal in this uh you, you, there is some aspect of identity there or mm. actuality there and like i said at the beginning of the conversation race isn't as important as sex mm. like sex is meaningful you can't get away from that there's something about the dying son the son yeah. of god uh god the father well, you know, hmm. you can you can decide not to believe in those or have contentious relationships with those concepts, yeah. but they're very powerful concepts, and they have yeah. a way of speaking to me. Where yes, Madonna is Madonna. Madonna is the feminine. The feminine is in me because I, I come. Of, I am of woman too. Yeah, that's and, what I was going to say. Doesn't it speak to the feminine in you? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so yeah, I just wanted to to, to push that a little bit further to yeah. say that the the sex, the gender is very operative in our archetypal language, and that's why I say mm. over and over again when I talk to gender critical people that if we destroyed gender tonight, we would have to reinvent it tomorrow because this is how our brains think. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, but it's a, it would be a very reductive way of looking at art to say that. Um, there are whole areas of art that you can't have access to because of your gender, because, you know, you couldn't, you can't really understand this as a man yeah. or as a woman yeah. or as a, you know, whatever. I, I really Cherokee. think, that, yeah, I think, I think that there's something to it. And that's why postmodernism really caught on. There is something to it that like, but it's, it's, it's really not a good lens to look at art and culture. It's just divisive. And, you know, it, it stirs up problems with, uh, you know, tribalism based upon identity lines. So what am I supposed to think about the painting behind you? How, how do I interpret the painting behind you? <laughs> this one? I don't know. 
I think, uh, what drove you to paint it? Well, like I said, it's a, it's a Rubens, which is a real classical, like staple of, uh, art, you know, it's, and it's, and it's a real classic image. It's very traditional and sort of standard and strong and ordered. So it gives you something... connection to that or it, it, it allows you to interact with something that's much, much older than you and, and yeah, physically well, create it or. Well, the fact that it's made of plasticine, I think that's the play on it. You know, it's this, it's a stupid thing. It's a childish, silly, uh, you know, unstructured, unordered, like weak, uh, material and it's silly. And I don't know. A lot of my work is that, like that. I, I do a lot of architectural drawing, and I think that's the same sort of thing. You know, architectural drawings are these plans, and it's straight lines and buildings and angles, and it's very ordered and traditional. And then I'll I'll put in something, um, you know, subversive or strange or a bit weird. Why? And because I think why strange? Think, why weird? Why subversive? Because I think art plays on that line between the chaos and the order you know it's it's it i i go there's a great museum in london called the uh john so museum and it's just full of um architectural drawings from the 17 1800s and they're really beautiful and people like to go there and look at them but i don't know if they're really art they, they're just a little bit too far onto the order side there's no expression mm -hmm. there they're really beautifully done they're really beautifully drawn they're lovely to look at and they're captivating. You know, there's always a big queue of people to go in and look at all these old drawings. There's something about them, but I don't know if they're really art because they need just a little push to have something, Play? something human in there. Because yeah. I think that's where that's where all art exists is in this is is like one foot on the land and one in the sea. You know, yeah, yeah it's yeah, between yeah. things being ordered and chaotic. Yeah, this openness to it, this this uh, question mark yeah. to it. You, you made me I think, think of the gothic architecture with the gargoyles, like the weird, the strange, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. the, the uh, yeah. aberration. Yeah, right. The vulgar, even. Yeah. I, th I think uh, it's funny because like, uh, like I, you've got some idea of the kind of things I think about postmodernism and, and, and the current sort of art movement. But I, I, I talk to a lot of other artists who feel that kind of way. But uh, they don't like to say it out in public, you know. The, the, the art world is really, really um, soaked in postmodernism. It's super woke, and uh, you know, it really starts to write, raise eyebrows if you talk out against it. And a lot of people, but a lot of people really don't like it behind closed doors. It's a, you, you know the old story. Like you, you must have talked to people in you know, every industry, but I'm thinking, especially of the comedy industry you saw a few years ago, uh, especially in London, you know, it's a closed world. It's very small. There's a few gatekeepers and you hear the comedians now saying that everyone sort of thought things were silly and, 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 uh, you know, but they, they couldn't, they couldn't express it. They knew that they would lose jobs and things. And then you got this this breakout movement. You started getting things like trigonometry and stuff, and they really exploded because suddenly you had an outlet for all this uh, grumbling. But I think the art world is a lot like that at the moment. There's, uh, 
you'll talk to a lot of people and they think that the way things are done is really silly and is is too couched in this postmodern critical theory type way of doing things. But uh, they don't want to say anything about it. They don't want to rock the boat. Well, anyway, a lot of the artists that I talk to um, that feel that way, it's funny because they're making similar work. Like it's always based around... There's a lot based around old architecture and that same sort of feeling of order and things being sort of strong, things made of stone. I've noticed the same sort of um, themes in the work, the people that are disgruntled with it. And so I thought that was cool, you know, mm. that I think we're drawn to a similar sort of thing. I think, like, because you could imagine this this Adam and Eve thing behind me, you could imagine... If the concept behind it artistically is just that uh, it's a, a classic Adam and Eve painting, but it's made out of children's plasticine, if that's basically it, you could imagine that done in a much more contemporary way, in a way which would fit in in a lot of London galleries more. And that would be to really lean into the plasticine side, to make like little claymation figures, like a little Wallace and Gromit, silly little scene with a tree in the middle and a sort of cartoony snake and the you know the two characters it's that that's the same piece of art really but it leans way more to the chaos side it leans way more to the silliness the irreverence and it, it's taking only a tiny little bit from the traditional you know solid side of things and i think i intentionally well not intentionally but I find that my work tends to go way more the other way. It, uh, like this, it still looks like a Rubens, even though it's made of plasticine. When you see it back from afar, it, it's 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 ninety percent the Rubens, ten percent the plasticine. Whereas the current trend is to go the other way, to go ninety percent silliness, ninety percent childishness, mm -hmm. and just have a little bit of tradition in it. And I've noticed that same ratio in a lot of other artists that feel the same way behind the scenes. I find that interesting. I think there, there might be this shift towards anything which is more solid and strong, architectural mm. drawings, you know, a big cube of granite, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, I don't know. That's what that's what I think it's about. <laughs> you know what I mean? I think it leans on that sort of side. Mm. It's... Uh, it's trying to get you to engage with uh, with something old and proper by making it just a little bit more uh, hmm. fun. Not much. <laughs> what is your um, trajectory going forward? Do you think from your point of view? Um, right sorry, from your. From where you are right now, how does the future right. look, especially with your work? Well, um, I'm like, well, I haven't explained how I like. I'm I'm doing some work with Unheard in London because of what I just explained. Uh, Unheard's a really cool place for. Uh, there's lots of academics and writers and things who have gone there, and um, they they couldn't. They felt they couldn't write other places and unheard to a place where, you know, you can hear unheard opinions. And 
it's really served as a a focus point in London for people who felt that kind of way. Like I said about the comedy industry, you get those, those sorts of guys in there as well. You get the trigonometry guys and Andrew Doyle has started a, a comedy unleashed comedy night. And things. It's sort of a focal point for people that felt that they, uh, they couldn't express themselves properly in other industry in the, in, you know, other places in their industry. And, uh, the art world is very much like that. And I want to do the same sort of thing uh, unheard for art. Uh, I started talking to them. I recently did a, a commission for them, which is a big uh, piece they put over the mantelpiece in there. And uh, it was a fun kind of work. It's called The Political it's Herds. Really good. And it's uh, a little Political illustration herds. of all the... Uh... Yeah. Oh, sorry. my he- I can't hear you. Uh, what's it called again? I spoke over you. Yeah. Uh, can you hear me? One, two, one, two. Oh, hello. Yeah, I got you again. Hey, there we go. Sorry, I lost you. I'm sorry, I interrupted yeah. you. What was it called? What's the painting called again? I've done a piece called The Political Herds. Oh. For, uh, yeah. And uh, it's a little illustration of uh, sort of the current political moment with every different political group that I could think of, you know, mm-hmm. in a big It's procession. really, really... Uh, what's the word? Engaging, entertaining. Uh, yeah. Great to look at, too. I'll link it down in the description. Everybody should find the biggest monitor that they can I'm find. I'm glad you like it. That's it nice. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, it's been really popular there. And, you know, people will like it a lot because they put host events there and then uh, people <laughs> have been interested in it. And we're going to sell a series of prints from uh, the, uh, of the same piece like pretty soon i think like before christmas but then uh we're going to put on a, a a show a proper show of all my work in the early next year and uh then there's other plans in the works to hopefully try and expand it hopefully i can put on a show there just like i would do in a gallery but um you know that i i won't need to compromise on my views or anything i can talk about what I've talked about with you here tonight mm-hmm. and uh, and not worry about getting cancelled and not have to watch myself. And if we can put on a show with Unheard and it's it goes well and, you know, pieces sell, then I'm sure that there'll be other artists who would want to come in and do the same. And hopefully we could do, you know, later on do another show, bring in some more people, do a little group show. Yeah. That's, that's uh, the economic and social... Uh, aspect of where you're going, but creatively, where you creatively, at? yeah. Well, I don't know. I, I I want to share with a lot of uh, the creatives that unheard. I already said I really like Mary Harrington. I haven't met her yet, but I was reading her book and I got an idea for a picture while I was reading it, and hmm. I'd like to sort of, you know, not collaborate but there's something really exciting going on there there's there's really interesting people it's packed full of people and they're all doing something there's writers there's people making things happen there's there's uh it's it's an exciting place artistically and creatively i'd like to try and uh try and work with some people in there on new pieces that that's what i go for creatively next Hmm. You got to like, uh, you know, 
try and surf on that wave of uh of creativity yeah because like i've explained through everything i think there is a, a a sort of change coming philosophically or happening philosophically uh i want to try and document that and, and i don't know because you can't really put too much thought into how your art's going to turn out you've just got to rely on that little thing in your head that tells you that this is a a, a decent thing to be doing mm. and I, I i'm just gonna hope that it does uh respond to the other things that are going on around me that that uh that kind of crowd yeah but more drawings i haven't done any for a while actually i've been too busy uh sort of uh getting this all this stuff ready i've re been really missing it hmm. your yeah. work is fantastic i really really dig it because did I'm, you really did sucker, you have a good look at it i'm a sucker for for details oh yeah and and, and very controlled uh just somebody with a, a, the ability to render something with their pencil or their pen or their hands. Uh, and then also like the, but then you, like you said, like there's that, that thing that breaks you out of just the form. Mm. Like there's this dialogue, there's opening this question, this oddity yeah. that, that, that makes you like, gives me purchase and starts uh, it enters me into dialogue with the imaginal. Which ones did you have a look at? the ones on your website which yeah i will put on the screen okay for cool. people but it did the, the video is not going to do them justice so they're yeah. going to definitely have to click the link was the there website. anything you particularly liked there well i really really like the uh the procession the herd yeah, yeah. One. yeah. I, I don't have the link yeah. on me right now i'd have to open it up on my phone and then send it to my computer yeah, but yeah. i'd have to look at it to, to talk about it maybe i could do that well, that, that's perfect for you, that one, isn't it? Fox, You've talked to most it? of those groups. Yeah, jgfox.art. 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 Or you can oh. look on, on my Instagram as well. I'm jgfoxart on Instagram. My stuff's there. So is this... I think, did you sorry. actually weave this thing? You have woven tapestry, or is it a drawing of a woven tapestry? Tapestry. The, no, those tapestries are woven, but I didn't weave them. I designed them, and I, I sent them to off to be uh, made. Oh, how did you design them? This is amazing. Like through computer, I guess. Yeah, yeah. You draw it, just, and then yeah, you I, have the computer do uh, some sort of bit mapping to it. That's exactly right. Yeah, what, yeah. Because with a lot of my stuff. I like them to, I like from afar them to look like something old. Classic, yeah. And then yeah, when you, yeah, you know, yeah. I, I, I imagine I'm decorating an old manor house in my mind a lot of the time. Is, and I imagine what I'd see there. Where so, cocaine yeah, comes the from. She's fitting. <laughs> yeah, the cocaine one, that was based on, uh, there's a really classic illustrator in London called uh, McDonald Gill. And he used to do hand-drawn maps, like uh, maybe the 20s, 30s. Oh, this is so and gorgeous. And he did a he did a map of the British Empire called Where Our Tea Comes From. Mm. Oh yeah, no, it was just parts of India and things, and yeah. uh, and it was a beautiful hand drawn map in that style. And so I thought I'd do a modern version, and it's uh, where our cocaine comes from, and it's done in the same sort of style. But yeah. I, I, again, it's like a, it's like a, awakening that old um, the old piece because if you yeah. saw that old nineteen twenties nineteen thirties piece now, 
it wouldn't have the same sort of uh, pizzazz that it had when it was originally made. It would have been genuinely interesting to see where RT comes from back then, but yeah. that's not as cool to us now. So I think by adding in something a little subversive, it, it wakes it up again. You you might feel like someone felt when looking at the original, like how interesting that was. I'm looking at your Rubens now, and like on my next yeah, big screen. Ah, oh, so gorgeous. I just really enjoy your work. That's oh, why. Thank you very much. That's, really that's nice. why. That's why you want a spot on the Benjamin Bowie show. <laughs> I've lost you again. I hope you're paying me a compliment because I. I am, yeah, no, you don't deserve compliments. Bad for your ego, but you did get one. I highly I recommend know. people um, check out your website. And can they get? They oh, can get printed. Fine. They can get printed uh, versions of your work. And let's let's plug that now. Where can they find you? And well, links yeah. will be in the description. But at the moment, uh, we're uh, we're waiting on her to sort it out. You have to just uh, the, everything will be for sale through Unheard uh, soon. We're Public putting books. a show together and everything. Uh, yeah, I've got a book. You can buy my book on Amazon. It's called The Art of J.G. Fox. That's great. And uh, and Unheard will be selling prints of the political landscape, or the pr political herds um, oh, in the next really? few weeks, I think. Okay. Yeah. They're going to try I and push those out before Christmas. Oh, great. Yeah. All right. Um, maybe I'll have yeah, something you're gonna get one. over here. Yeah. That'd look really cool. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'll, I'll, I'll sort you out. And then, yeah. and then in the new year, they'll be selling everything else. So, if you're interested in my work, just follow me on uh, Instagram and things. I'm I'm quite new to social media. I was I was avoiding it for a long time. So I've only just sort of started out on there. So I would appreciate it if people could add me because it would be cool because I can probably actually talk to people because I don't have yeah. uh, too much going on there yet. So yeah. if you've listened to this, then uh, you've got to add me and just uh, you know you have to <laughs> say yeah. hi. You're obligated. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Mr. Fox, thank you very much for reaching out to me. Uh, oh, thank this, you very much. It's very nice. Uh, this dialogue, this back and forth on these these ideas, and uh, people definitely. I'll get in to, touch with, about a picture. Yeah, get in touch about a picture, and hopefully, I'll make it my way to London one day, and I can check out your oh, yeah. uh, this this wonderful. Well, yeah, let me know when you're in London. Call yeah, we can go to one her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was great. Cool. <laughs> All right, it's been really nice to talk to you. Absolutely, thank you. All right. Thanks a lot.